Testing, testing. I don't, what, what else do you say? I'm so sick of saying that. I feel like well, an idiot every time I say that. Usually people ask you what you have for breakfast. So I'd be like, Daniel, what did you have for breakfast? I didn't have breakfast. I had coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I had coffee. That's it. Okay. How do you feel about having coffee in the morning? It's good. Oh, this is what people do yeah, to test, this huh? Is, I'm, I'm just trying to get you to talk. You're, you are. I've been doing. I've been doing this for a while now. You're maybe like thirty or thirty-five or something like that, and you're better at it than me already. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. You have done radio stuff before, right? Mm-hmm. Like you did something for. You were on NPR for something, Fresh uh-huh. Air, or something like that. Fresh Sounds. When our new album, the band's album, came out, we. Had a bunch of stuff on NPR and I did some blogging. What did you blog for them? Some of it was like really, well, they, they were asking me sort of dumb questions. Not dumb, but like frivolous, lighthearted questions. Like if you could have a have dinner with any composer from history. But then they asked me something like... That is kind of a dumb question. It's kind of dumb. I was supposed to get deep with that question. Like nothing really interesting comes of it. But then they asked me one question that was like, what would you change about the current scene? And then that led to this whole big long rant, actually, that like got me in a little bit of trouble okay but... i'm recording now but okay okay so you have to explain the rant okay and then you have to explain why you got in trouble okay so not to, i mean i'm not trying to get you in more trouble yeah the question was what would you change about the music scene I, i'm not maybe not remembering the exact wording but that was the gist of it that's what i took out of the question and i just sort of explained my point of view which is that a lot of people a lot of composers and complain about how like no one listens to this music like no there's not a wide enough audience for contemporary music but there's also this sort of rejection of people who are doing either more experimental or more you know accessible things that do bring in a larger crowd so the the second someone has an audience what do you mean that's a little confusing what do you mean by experimental well i think you have someone like laurie anderson or meredith monk whose stuff is you know not within the sort of academic world of music yes but why not (laughs) You know, they're doing, in my point of view, they're doing incredibly interesting, amazing things and really taking classical traditions and moving in a different direction. Yet the second someone moves in a different direction, I think the classical music scene is like, no, you're not one of us anymore. And they're missing this great opportunity. And I thought of this actually when I put a Meredith Monk CD into my computer and the genre comes up as world music. And it does. Meredith Monk lives, um, you know, two miles away from me in Manhattan. And I was like, why are we not, is classical music not rushing to claim this as their, as their own, you know? And, and it just got me thinking of um, that as a larger issue. So that's but, sort of, it wasn't any sort of rejection of academia at all. It was just sort of a hope that academia could be more inclusive. But who are these people who are rejecting the... When I think of the New York scene, mm-hmm. I feel like that there's a lot of like the new Amsterdam people, which you're a part of. You guys do very well here. And that's great. I mean, that's great. It's more of a general attitude. It's still the sort of the remnants of this sort of like uptown downtown thing that I and it played out in a different way for me. I mean those grant applic like Laurie Anderson and Meredith Monk are doing fine. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like their their music has a wide enough appeal where it doesn't have to be supported by institutions. Those institutions are for more things that don't have a wider appeal that for whatever reason private foundations, governments, whoever who whoever the money is coming from for whatever reasons they have, feel the need that those other things get out there. So it's almost like a different kind of economy that it's working on. But I don't think that Meredith Monk or Laurie Anderson, or I'd say Meredith Monk in particular, doesn't have this huge commercial appeal either. I think she's still very much dependent on the same sources of funding that most composers depend on. And I think the same thing with like the New Amsterdam people. It's like they're not sell- making money off of their CDs. So they're still dependent on that type of... Mm-hmm. funding and you think that the people who are in charge of distributing the money are saying we don't do that i think there's remnants of this attitude that divides people and you know i think that it also for me i started thinking about this stuff when i started to have students who were still asking these questions like is this music smart enough you know and is, is what i'm writing is it too simple so your students are asking you this question is this music smart enough like or is this too simple And they feel bad about these things that they shouldn't feel bad about. You know, these considerations that don't make music better or worse. You know, there's good simple music, there's bad simple music. Yeah. And 
All I'm saying is I, I wish that there were, I hope for a more inclusive scene within the umbrella of contemporary classical. I think that would solve a lot of my students' anxieties. Well, who do you, where do you teach? I teach out of my home privately. Okay, so, mm-hmm. these, so these are private students and they say the situation they're getting in is, okay, so I'm a private student. I eventually want to go to school for this. Maybe they're already going to mm-hmm. school for it. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're in their 30s and interested in composing and trying to make some career out of that. And then they feel this pressure because what you studied in an academic institution and these types of things, um, Milton Babbitt, spectralism, blah, 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 blah. They're very easy to teach in an institution, and mm-hmm. but yet their intuition is guiding them in another direction. So there's mm-hmm. this kind of weird dichotomy that they're dealing with. And you're just saying, just go with right. what you feel like. Yeah, I feel like there's it's hard enough to be a composer. It's hard enough to make anything. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that added anxiety is just really out of date. You know, and I wish I could just, my goal as a teacher is to free them from that. You know, and I, I teach them spectralism. I teach them serial techniques if that's what they're interested in. But, you know, I really don't want them to feel like they're doing anything out of this sense of shame that their ideas are too basic or too poppy or too in this one genre. You know, you just kind of can go on forever with that sort of anxiety as a composer, especially as a young composer. I still follow New York, even though I live in Berlin, mm-hmm. just because the people I know. And I look at what gets covered in the press. I look at public interest, what concerts are people actually going to? I look at what the buzz is and what people are talking about and the things that, you know, Alex Ross writes in his blog and everything like that. And it doesn't seem like that type of music that you're talking about is constantly being pushed under. For me, it's apples and oranges. You know, it's two different styles of music. Maybe sometimes they're fighting over the same piece of monetary pie in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Do you th- I mean, do you feel like, is there a suppression going on? I mean, I almost no, feel like there's all. no... Yeah. No, not at all. No, no, no. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I feel like it's more... The question that NPR asked me, I took it more from like a student's perspective. You know, like what is being taught in conservatory... Who are the composers that you're exposed to in conservatory? What are the kinds of things that are held up as like, this is amazing and then this is trash, this is cheap, you know? And had hoped, you know, during my education for this more inclusive sort of thing. So it's not about the market. I mean, like Meredith Monk will sell out BAM. In that way, she doesn't, there's not that sort of, any sort of suppression. But it's more of just like what I was thinking about is like, what is my world? Like, what is my scene? What is the scene? And where are there still these sort of artificial divisions between genres that don't or there shouldn't be? But I almost feel like like academic institutions are are meant for through their definition and how they were founded by like Milton Babbitt at Princeton, you know, back in the day, creating the Ph.D. in the first place is that they were there for academic music, music that was extremely heady and maybe not so like immediately accessible. Mm hmm. And then something that you do, it's great and it's inclusive in the scene and everything like that, but it doesn't need, it doesn't need to be in, mm-hmm. in academic institutions. It's fine without that prestige. It's still going to be around without that prestige. Mm-hmm. Like it has its own sense of prestige too because it has, it has its own tradition and its own following and you know, its own momentum and narrative. So why does it matter if it's in an academic institution? If like it doesn't need to be taught because there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of people interested in doing it and are figuring out how to do it their own way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think cuz you're dealing with like 17, 18, 19 year olds who are trying to find their way as a musician in the world. You know, we're not talking about like people who are 23 and want to go to grad school to, you know, be a composition professor. I'm talking about like the undergrads that I see that's like their musical world is what they encounter in school. You know, all I'm saying is that like I had hoped for something that does not make that distinction between, you know, this is in the canon, this is academic music that can be taught. And then this is music that is something else. Is this a problem you had while going to school yourself? Sure. Yeah. And that like your tendency was to go for, I don't know, can you, you had to label it for me because I don't want to do that to you, but like, (laughs) What would you call what you do or how would you describe what you do? Oh, God, I have no idea. People hear it, but like the thing that you had an intuition for and had a tendency to go towards, Mm -hmm. like, did you feel that there was a contradiction between that and what was rewarded in the academic institution you were in? Yeah. Okay, so my question is, what kind of trouble did you get in? 
it was it a blog or was it a radio interview or what was it? The one I got in trouble. Well, I'm, or, let's, the, or the the the, the, the one you I, got flack for. The, yeah, yeah. Like, what would you change about the scene? You said you either did a radio interview thing, you wrote a blog, mm-hmm. and then you got lots of responses. What were the responses, and why did you? Well, most of it was positive, you know, yeah. but um, a lot of it was this sort of. I think knee-jerk reaction of like labeling people, certain artists as sellouts, you know, a little too quickly and sort of like what you were saying, like this music doesn't need to be taught in academia, which I think it does, you know, it needs to be, these people are composers and this music deserves a place there. So I think people saw it as like an attack on academia, which it wasn't, you know, like I was in music school for eight years and that's a big part of who I am. And it's because of that that I would like it to be a better environment for students coming up in the future. The conclusion I came to is that maybe I don't need academia. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I shouldn't be teaching at an institution. And maybe like people who are more interested in what I am or in, more interested in what you do, maybe the route for them is not to spend eight years at an academic institution where the culture of the humanities and the culture of the sciences is applied to something that it shouldn't be applied to. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's almost like a, after a while for my sensitivities and me being in academia for a long time, I learned how to do it. But after a while I was like, Oh, this is a square peg round hole situation. I think the thing for me was that I always felt like I did belong there, but you was, did, I felt like I did. Like Why, I, cause you were, you were smart or, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean though? Like you, well, you can yeah. still th- like you're a, a thinker and you can make it a formulate an argument and that's the environment for that. I just, yeah, I just loved it. I loved being around people who were talking about ideas and that's what the best school environment is. It's a bunch of young people doing what you're doing, talking about ideas 24 seven without the pressures of other forces, you know, and I'm not contradicting myself in that I feel like you shouldn't be aware of the forces of the market and the way things change and the way to promote yourself when you're not supported by an institution. But there is that sort of dreamy quality to being in school and just being able to do what you want and talk yeah. to your friends. And I loved that. And I thought when I was in school that I would go in the path that you're describing and that I would be a professor and that I would, you know, be in school forever and teach young people. And this is what I, I love teaching. And I thought that this is what I would do, but then was completely disillusioned <laughs> and was told that I didn't belong. Like how did X, Y person say that? Oh, the people would say things like your music's very non-academic. Like you'll have success running a band and all these things are, are not insults at all. Yeah, but and- I always felt like, no, you know, like part of me was like, no, 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 my music comes from the same place. Like there's a ton of math in there. There's a lot of nerdy references to, to music that has come before. There's a ton of like very considered orchestration. And yes, I'm trying new things, but, you know, it's very much rooted in the classical tradition. And I felt maybe it's all just bitterness coming out now that I felt a little bit re- reject, pushed out of that before I wanted to be. And I think that I, there was this feeling when I moved to New York that like I'm doing what I have to do to be in a place where my music is heard. And I think that if I had felt that academia was the place for that, I would have stayed. So if your music has all these things in it, like why were they saying that it wasn't fitting in an academic if it was academic? Because it has other stuff in it too. It yeah, because the surface, yeah, yeah. You know, the, it has yeah. like electric guitars. And to me, it's tonal, like most of it is, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's tonal. I would say it has a tonal center a lot of the time. Those things to me are, are really superficial. Like they don't make the music good or bad. It's just sort of a product of me growing up in the 80s and 90s. And like, this is my musical world and I like it and I want to borrow from it. And it feels strange to me to, music, to write music that doesn't have a pulse, even though I also do that. So it felt like it was all these dumb things that were getting in the way. And I always sort of felt a little bit... I'm not a bitter person at all. I mean, and again, like I feel like every time I talk about my relationship to academia, it comes out sounding very black and white and it's not, you know, like I had, I went to amazing schools and they pointed me in the direction where I could be successful and I'm eternally grateful and I loved being there, but there was this part of me that felt rejected and I still, you know, six years later, trying to get to the bottom of that and of change why, things for of, the better. Of why you felt rejected or or why they... Why did I they, not they feel... rejected you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like why I left when I was like 24 with this like 
I'm never looking back kind of the kind of like oh, really? thing. And, and I it didn't, I didn't want that. Like my plan was to get a doctorate and be a professor. And I still very much want to be a professor, you know, but I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't writing music at that point. I couldn't thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. I think when I left school, I was just done with it more than anything. I just wanted to be in the world writing music because that's personally like where I thrive. You know, I, get a lot of energy off of organizing concerts, putting together my own shows, collaborating with friends, collaborating with directors, with singers, with writers, like all that stuff that is possible in New York and that I've dedicated the last five years to makes me want to write more music. So I just felt like I was ready for that. And it was more of an excitement than any sort of bitterness. But I do feel like as every composer should, as every composer who teaches, I feel should, I try to make keep my students from having to solve the same problems. I want to make their paths a little bit easier. You mean aesthetically or professionally? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. More professionally, more just like in terms of navigating the world of being a professional musician, like I want to make it easier on on them than it was on me. Just like the best teachers I had imparted that wisdom to me and made it a little bit easier. Was it a difficult transition for you? Going from academia into the world? Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I moved to New York and I had like seven jobs and still had no money. <laughs> and oh, didn't, really? like wasn't writing anything because I was your... so busy. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what? Yeah. I mean, that's just New York. That's part of me getting mad in the traffic jam, too. Right. Like that. But uh, what were you doing? Like, um, When I first moved to New York, I was personal assistant for Meredith Monk and also for Derek Bermel. And I had a job playing piano for little kid ballet classes on the Upper East Side. It was not my destiny. (laughs) It was fine, but I got my first paycheck and I was like, this is so not worth it. (laughs) And I worked for a copyright lawyer doing transcriptions. So like a band would say, oh, this car commercial stole our song. And to have a case in court, you'd have to look at every single detail of the song, which meant having a composer transcribe the song. So, oh really? And then and then they would know, compare and, and it then to, the lawyer brings it to court and be yeah. like, "These symbols look like these symbols." Yeah, and or then like, the judge is like guilty. Exactly. It was a strange job. So I was doing all of these things and then doing a lot of copy work. How did you make that transition? What do you mean to being a full time composer? I'm assuming that you're more where you want to be than you were then. Mm -hmm. And that thing is a loop because I get caught in that too because I also do copy work and everything like that. And then you get trapped because the financial problem is never going to ease up. Uh, And at the same time, you have to find a way to make space to do what you want to do. So and hopefully monetize that in a way so you can push that other stuff out. So how did you? Well, I was really lucky in that I got a job running the Mata Festival when I was 26 you know, so I was executive director of that, which was a huge, huge job. I mean, it was like definitely approaching a full time job because I was running a nonprofit and like dealing with all the fundraising and and a lot of artistic stuff, too. And I ran I had an artistic director, too. But anyway, the point is that it was just one job. <laughs> and mentally, that was so much easier for me. I would just wake up, you know, four days a week, go to this office, go to this job from nine to five. It varied a lot. I mean, it was like, I was the boss. So I could, if I had a show, this is the great thing about it. If I had a show and had to rehearse for it, I could go into work the next day instead. Mm -hmm. And like that flexibility saved my life and it enabled me to do what I needed to do. And during that time when I was running the festival, you know, I started my ensemble. I wrote a lot of music. I was going out every single night in New York to concerts and meeting people. And after a while, it just sort of started to get easier. You know, and then I was able to finally, when I, there was a scary moment, like I had more commissions than I could handle. And then I just had to not do the day job anymore. But it wasn't like I had tons of money. <laughs> it was a leap of faith. I was like, I think I can do this, you know, but it wasn't, it was never sure really until like this yeah. year. You probably got good at networking, huh? Yeah. Something I'm terrible at. At working? No, no, no. Networking. Oh, networking. networking. Like, terrible at working. Good at working. I was like, mm, I think you're pretty good at that. Yeah. And I enjoy it. You know, I, I don't think anyone, I should say very few people are like, I really love going up to random strangers and asking for money. Like that's just always an awkward thing. But I started to get sort of a kick out of it because I really believed in the organization. Obviously, I believe in contemporary music written by young people and I want to support that. So it just worked. There's there's also a difference between doing that for an organization, which is, and then doing that for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like 
I wouldn't have a problem doing that either for like an organization that I believed in. But when all of a sudden it becomes the situation where I'm like, how you doing? Hey, I really believe in myself and I think I'm great. So you should give me money for this thing. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's where it gets trickier, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very tricky. But at the same time, I think what you said works. You know, I think that people who are inclined to give money and resources to young people who are making things respond to that sort of confidence, you know? So I know that you feel like a jerk when you're saying it. I feel like, I feel like such an ass. And then I walk away and I'm like, that didn't go well. They saw right through my false confidence of, you know. I think that, but you, you have, it's not false. Like you're a composer. Obviously something about what you're doing is exciting and new and fresh to you. So it's like, if you can communicate, it sounds cheesy, but if you can communicate like that sort of genuine excitement about it, I think that that does cut through. But for me, it's starting at point A and going to point B and you never really reach point B. There's like, it like it gets, it's always changing and goes a little bit farther. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm always excited about the transition that I'm in. Like this is what I eventually want to do or not, or this is what I'm interested in right now. And then hopefully the piece I'm working on right now will be a little bit closer to that. But that means that essentially I'm admitting that what I'm going to be doing is imperfect. And if you're the type of person who's more settled and consistent in what you do, then you can say, this is what I do. This is why it's great. You should hire me because this is what I do. Not, this is what I'm going for. Give me the money. So give me a little bit, a little bit of chance to get a little bit closer. But mm-hmm. that means that that's necessarily the person who's giving out the cash is going to be like, well, maybe what I'm going to get is going to fail a little bit. And they're right, you know? Well, that's but, always uh, true. Yeah. That's yeah. Always, yeah, that's always true. But that's always how I sell it. I mean, how do you do, how do you do it? And this is officially you teaching me right now. So teach me. Well, I think that what you're feeling, every composer feels, or I should say, I don't, I'm not going to speak for every composer, Jesus, but like, well, then at least the two of us, at least the two of us always, I feel like I'm always in a transition. I feel like I'm always in a sense, writing one big piece my whole life. And it's sort of every piece gets closer to an idea or it touches on something. And then the next piece, I'm like, I didn't really quite get there in that other piece. I'm going to explore it in this new piece. And it, it just continues on and on and on and on. But at the core, maybe when I, if you're pitching something, wouldn't lead off with that <laughs> sentiment of like, I'm approaching something, but I don't think I'm quite going to get there. I mean, you really have to like, just say like, I'm trying to do something. But I think you can say like, I'm trying to do something that's really big for me. And it's going to do A, B, C, and D. And this is why I'm going to put all this time and energy into it. And also, like, people just want to be part of something exciting and artistic and new. You know, so if you can make people feel like they are a part of the piece, like they you're bringing them into your world as a young artist. And the thing is, like, nobody knows the bleak reality of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> they do now. Now they, they do. do now. No, but nobody knows that, like... Most of being a composer is like sitting in your room and like eating rice and beans and like pulling teeth out of your ears trying to like think of something worthwhile. I like to point out that there are rice and beans in your sink right now. Yes, I had rice and beans for lunch because I didn't have anything else in the refrigerator because I don't have time to go to the grocery store. That's another part of being a composer. Okay, so continue. But you said that. I was like, I saw that in your sink. yeah. Yeah. People have this idea, like I hear about your life and I think, okay, young man living in Berlin, young American living in Berlin in 2012 at the center of this like thriving European artistic scene where like, and I have this image of like concerts happening all the time and like people in lofts, like smoking cigarettes and like, it's awesome. And they have dinner parties and like crazy discussions. And I know that that's probably not what your life is like every day. But there are moments like that, though. There are moments like that. There are that. lots of moments like that. But every day, it's every day. It's you know me doing copy work in my underwear for four hours, and then mm-hmm. you know drinking some coffee, and then spending five hours voicing a chord at a piano. Yes. And then that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a really. It's pretty. It's you know. It's pretty boring. You yeah. Know? But the what I'm saying is like the image and the aura that you create that we all can create is something that people want to be a part of, and it is exciting. Like I. Every time I get a commission from an individual, I love it because you bring them into the world of the piece, you know, and I always send them updates. I send them pictures of like rehearsals, like random things because like they are a part of the, the journey, too. And I think that that's what people respond to. So before you said that you always feel like you're in transition, too, and maybe that's not what you communicate. But can you give me an example of a piece and what you thought was imperfect about it? and how you improved it on to the next piece. 
maybe bring me through like a kind of short little snippet of that journey or process or that long process that you're going through. What are you going for? And let me apologize for saying that unanswerable question. So just like feel free to figure out something with it. Well, it's funny. I feel like this is sort of embarrassing, but I always have in my head this idea of the perfect piece, you know, and it's like there's this part of me that feels like I could just have it in me to write this piece that is that is perfect. There's like no extra notes that is like mathematically perfectly constructed and like resonant and beautiful and huge. And then so there's a part of me that is always like, this is the piece. This is the piece that's just going to have like the perfect proportions and be like communicative yet still stand up to analysis, like all this crazy stuff, you know, that, that I think of. And then the second, so I always have that in my mind when I'm sitting down to write. The second I sit down, it all gets thrown out the window. Like the second I have an idea, that idea has like distorted or has like weird parts to it that don't quite make sense intellectually, but like make sense in, in the work for some reason that I can't quite describe. But at the core of everything that I try to write is I'm always looking for this perfect cocktail of, you know, familiarity and surprise which I guess like is sounds sort of generic and that's like sort of what every artist is looking for. But I really think about this day and night, like having something that brings the listener in, whether it's like, okay, this is a D major chord. And like, you've all heard this chord a million times, but somehow in the context of this piece, it is different and it is presented in a way that is really interesting and surprising and maybe a little bit unsettling. And I feel like that to me has been consistent since I started writing music when I was a kid that I wanted both so and that's something that you're constantly tweaking. Have you developed mannerisms now because of that? I mean that in like a good way. Like is now is there something like this is what Missy does in order to throw the wrench into the gear? Like over time have you figured out like what has worked for you in order to make give people that reaction that you're going for? I, I feel like it's more I don't think of it as like now I'm gonna use my tricks <laughs> to like get this from the audience, but I do feel like there's certain things that I've worked out over the the course of many pieces, you know, so there'll be like four pieces that I write in a row that each play with, for example, like having major and minor thirds there at the same time, or having a major chord on top with like a minor ninth in the bass. I mean, just something really concrete and simple like that, that is sort of somehow I'll write it into one piece and then feel in the next piece that I didn't quite work out that idea. Like I'm not sick of that idea yet. Like there's something still, there's more to explore within that. I feel like, yes, I have certain things that I do again and again, but it's all in an attempt to sort of work it out to a degree that I'm satisfied with it over the course of many works. And I don't feel like I have to do something 100% new or different in every piece. I want to get back to like the mathematically perfect thing. <laughs> do you think that's part of your academic conditioning? Maybe a little bit more subconsciously. I I'm thinking more of works by like, David Lang or um, John Luther Adams or Louis Andreessen, who were all three of them were composers that I discovered outside of school. And they all have this sort of um, mathematical side to their work. You know, like the beginning of um, De Materi, the Louis Andreessen opera, where he has a same chord played 144 times. And then it all sort of breaks down. Like that to me was so interesting and is very planned and work like Little Match Girl Passion it just you have this feeling that there are no extraneous notes that there's this principle at work that is somehow beyond the music but is this the backbone that makes the music good you know so i guess what i was drawn to as a student and as a young composer and and now as a slightly less young composer <laughs> was this really strong structure and backbone so it didn't have to be the math of serialism but it was just like it's just what happened. Like, that's what your heroes were doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, but like, they're, but they're my heroes because they did that. Like, they're, I was attracted to that music because it felt clean to me. It felt like this is not messy at all. This is every note is considered, yet it feels very musical. So how do I do that? Would you ever embrace messy? Would I ever embrace messy? Yeah. Sure. But in, in my own way, you know, I think like, messy but not arbitrary i love music that has a sort of element of chaos or disorder the same way that you know you go to i just saw einstein on the beach at bam and 
I feel like in every scene there's one it's highly structured, highly organized, but there's like one chaotic element. Like one dancer will come out in red face paint with flashlights and go crazy. Or, you know, in another scene, you know, there's like one dissonant note or one something in the staging that is just like wrong but very intentional. You know, so that kind of disorder and messiness I really love when it's in counterpoint to something that has a really strong backbone. That thing was huge, wasn't it? I stand on the beach. I stand on the beach. No, I mean, of course, like everybody knows about the opera, but I'm talking about the BAM production. Uh-huh. I just remember, just because I like, I still know people here that mm-hmm. like I I knew it was going on through them. It was like sold out every night and everything like that. Yeah, awesome. Who, yeah, yeah. I it was know. such an. It's such, I'm sure just, it was. It was like, so exciting. Yeah. So who cares if it's taught at an academic institution? It doesn't matter. It's still it's still awesome. Why does it have to be? Like people are still going to be drawn to it and want to do something like that or be mm-hmm. ins- completely inspired by that, whether or not it's taught in school or anything. I don't, so, well, I don't think it needs to be picked apart. I just think it doesn't need to be trashed in the way that Philip Glass is, for example, is trashed for being doing the same thing that he's done for years, you know, for having music that has a pulse, music that is minimalist, music that is popular. I, I just I don't think that we need to sit there and pick apart Einstein on the beach in order to really be moved by it as young composers but i would like to live in a world where it's not trashed by the press because it's philip glass (laughs) i don't want music dismissed for superficial reasons do you think it's possible to get to a point where like you can just brush off the haters and like just like float above it do you feel like that's something that you're just naturally good at or it's something you have to work at getting to a point and not worrying about what somebody who owns a blog or rants on microphones on a podcast cares about. I think you, everyone has to work at it. I, I don't think that anyone is really being honest when they say, Oh, I just don't care what people think because we all spend a lot of time on, on this music and it's our life's work. And if you're not hurt when someone criticizes it, I mean, that's like saying that you're not hurt when someone criticizes your child of course, you're going to get mad and angry. And I think that that's frankly inevitable. We are all affected by negative criticism of our work. And we're all sort of pumped up by positive criticism. I think that we have to work on, every artist has to work on how they react to that. And you can choose to react in a lot of different ways. But it's it's a lot of mental work to then decide to let that just go away. I think that it's it's essential though. And the thing is, like... While we're on this topic, I think it's essential to also brush away the positive reviews too. Yeah. Because if you start yeah. taking them seriously, you're going to take the negative reviews seriously. And then when they contradict each other, what are you left with? Like all you're really left with is yourself. That's all you're going to have at the end. So we need to just sort of not be affected by any of it to choose to not react to it. Are you at that point yet? Well, no, I'm not at that point. And I don't think that I'll ever quite be completely 100% at that point. But I am better. You know, it used to be that a bad review would destroy me and that a great review would make me the happiest person on earth. And I take a much more sort of Buddhist neutral tone to the whole thing now. I think a lot of it came out of putting out an album with my ensemble and having... What ensemble is this? This is... Victoire. Okay, so this is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, um, or band, whatever you want to call us. And there were a lot of like conflicting reviews. It was overall like really positive and great. But there were like people would make comments about specific songs that totally con- contradicted each other. You know, so one reviewer would say one thing, one reviewer would say another. And in the end, like we were like, well, what are we supposed to do? And the answer is nothing. You know, it's like you can't take either of them seriously. And so just seeing how it's, it's just someone's opinion at the moment. And they, they probably have a million political, personal agendas of their own. But you have to bounce information off of something to get feedback. So where do you, how do you get your how do you get your feedback through the members of the band, or through close friends who you trust? Well, do you have to? I mean, I'm not disagreeing, I think, I but think, I think you do. If you want to have a relationship with the world, you need to you know throw something out there mm-hmm. and find a way to parse the information that comes back. You know, look at it and you know, make an adjustment. Either it's the adjustment to ignore it or the adjustment to respect it, but you have to. There has to be a feedback loop between you and whoever your public is. I think mm-hmm. that's. I think that's important. Well, I mean, I think talking to the audience, reading the crowd's reaction, like noticing what people respond to and what they don't, and really trying to, as much as you can, dial into that. And 
I have to be clear, like I'm not saying <laughs> it's a tricky thing because like I don't think it's productive to say to a composer or oh, just don't you read your reviews because we can't help it. And if you don't read your review, someone will say, oh, did you read this? And then they'll read it to you. You know, you can't really escape getting feedback from the world. Has um, that happened to you? Has somebody ever been like, did you read this review of you? And then you yeah, said and no. Like, no. And then they like take out the newspaper clipping and they say, and they yeah. like, oh, really? Oh yeah, all the time. Oh God, Or like someone That's will post, awful. post it on like, Facebook, do oh, okay. you know, or like tweet about it. And it's like, you can't, I think it's really hard to not pay attention to that. Yeah. So you constantly, and you know, sometimes I'll get um, a criticism that, that really stings and like won't leave me alone. And that's usually because it's something that I've been think considering myself already. And so it like resonates with me like, oh, this really bothered me about that piece or I wasn't quite able to do what I wanted to do in that. And this critic picked up on it and that just sort of brings it home. Yeah, it's like, oh God, he nailed it on the head. Which yeah, is, yeah, I think yeah. can be very productive. Yeah, it can, you it know? can be productive, but then sometimes you want to call up that person. You're like, I know. Yeah, but I do some, sometimes you try to fool yourself into thinking that these things aren't problems and then someone confirms it and it's like, well, that kind of criticism can be helpful. I think when it's coming from some external source, it's it's annoying, you know, but if especially if it's a teacher or a friend who gives you that feedback, I think it can be really useful. Yeah. And then once you, and then once you hear your fears confirmed or your insecurities confirmed about your work, then you can be like, OK, now I know I have to make an adjustment in the next thing that I do because I don't feel good about this part of it and other people don't feel good about this part of it. So that's the area I need to work on. It's tricky to the language of like need to make an adjustment about it. Like I feel like, again, in the end, you're left with yourself and what you want to do as an artist. And so if you are not quite getting there with some specific technique or whatever it is, like, and you're encouraged like through this feedback to really go for it, like that is when it's good. If you're making an adjustment to sell more CDs or get a wider audience, I think that's really dangerous because those things, market forces are so fickle that, you how can you make art specifically geared towards that unless you're like justin bieber yeah that's a better yeah. way to put it i, know, it, I, I think I, yeah. yeah okay so let's talk about the eighth blackbird piece now sure yeah so i wrote this piece for eighth blackbird in 2009 three years ago two and a half years ago and the way i describe it in the program note is that it's a pile of melodies in a free fall so this sort of relates to what we were talking about before about how there's this highly structured thing. I mean, it's essentially like A, B, A, B, C, B, A, <laughs> you know, it's like this, this really traditional sort of Rondo form, but like there's this chaos that sort of takes over this, the, all these melodies by the end. And my other idea with the piece was that the percussionist would very slowly like eat the rest of the ensemble, you know? So in the end he's playing all the melodies and all the parts himself. And the other, the third idea that sort of drove the piece was this timbre of the harmonica because the piece begins and ends with them playing harmonicas and just sort of blowing in and out of these harmonicas. And I think that sort of describes it, you know, it's just this sort of these themes again and again and again, but, but sort of decaying and becoming more chaotic and fuzzy and distorted as they go on. Thank you. 
do you feel like you fit well into like what Eighth Blackbird does when they ask you for a commission? What freedom do you feel like you have? What freedom do you feel like you don't have when you're writing for a group like that that has a very specific profile? Well, when I they first asked me, I was actually really nervous about it because I've never... <laughs> never really loved that instrumentation. It's a classic, like, tiny orchestra instrumentation, right? Except I don't think of it as a tiny orchestra, because I feel like it's hard to blend. There's not a really strong bass, other than the bass of the piano and then the low cello, which isn't that low. I mean, I like Puro Lunaire, <laughs> but that's really one of the only pieces I like with that instrumentation I really loved at the time. You know, I think that since I wrote the piece, like, you know, they've, Eighth Blackbird has performed Steve Reich's um, double sextet, yeah. which is great. I saw them do that at Merit's Music ages ago. I don't even know how many years ago that was. But they went on tour and they did that in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was a big deal, actually. Yeah, I really like that piece. Yeah. I mean, that's a little different because he has electronics. Or it's the double, you know, yeah. the doubled ensemble. So um, I felt like the pieces that I liked the best for that instrumentation did something unusual with it. You know, like the pieces that Bang in a Can wrote for 8th Blackbird, um, Singing in the Dead of Night was this collectively written work for 8th Blackbird. And that every piece has some sort of strange theatrical unexpected element. And I think that that brings that ensemble to life a little bit. So that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that these particular players could handle it. So that's where the harmonicas came from. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. so that's where like I wanted this weird element that was just there from the beginning and just sort of helped us throw away all of our expectations of a piece written for that specific instrumentation, which so dominated the 20th century. Yeah, maybe there's like a generic Pierrot sound that's almost impossible to escape because what are your, what are, what are the variations? How many different permutations of instruments have been used? I mean, I'm sure there's a mathematical limit and also like a, maybe an infinite timbral limit, mm-hmm. but even that has its own like world within it. Because also my thing is like, I really love sounds that envelop the listener, you know, so like big string sections or electronics that are surround sound or keyboards that are, have really these really fat sounds like organ sounds. And you don't really get that with that ensemble. And so the harmonica does have that sort of buzzy out of tune enveloping timbre. So I think that that's that's what also was attractive to me about it. Do you think you could still remain yourself and avoid that big enveloping sound like, is that your stamp that has to be in every piece and you have to figure out how to put that in every piece? Or could you figure out a way to be you without using the harmonicas and just accepting this generic 20th century mm-hmm. Perot sound? Yeah, I don't think it's a stamp. I don't, and, and that I, it's not a crutch for me. It's just something I like. You know, it's just some, a sound that I like right now in my life. It's yeah. a sort of big, washy enveloping thing i think i could definitely i could find a way to be myself 90 percent of the piece doesn't have the harmonicas so i yeah. and i feel like this piece is very much is very me it was more just a way to get into it so what else about it is you then if, like for the other 90 percent of the piece that doesn't have that 10 percent harmonica sound what else mm-hmm. is like that's what i do i mean i really like experimenting with repetition that is not exact you know so i don't think of myself as a minimalist composer but this piece in particular has this theme that for a while does not change and comes back this like six bar theme that comes back again and again and again in slightly different contexts. I like that. I mean, that's the joy of pop music is the moment when the chorus comes back and you're like back in this world that is slightly familiar. The advantage of being a composer is that you can tweak that and do funny things to the orchestration or have it come back in a different octave or something. You know what I mean? You're not tied to this pop music form, but I think there is something satisfying about it anyway. And just to sort of like, um, a lot of my music that I'm writing now, it starts with harmony. So harmony is the sort of thing that comes before any of the melodies, any of the rhythms, any of the structure. It's just finding chords that I like. And this piece is definitely very harmonically driven. Is there always a pop music tie? To what you're going to be doing? Sure. That's the music that I grew up listening to. So it's inevitable that I try to steal the best from all of, all of the worlds. <laughs> so like, to me, pop music is just one of the colors in the palette. I, again, I do. I love that moment when the chorus of a pop song returns. And then maybe you have like the bridge and then the chorus comes back, but slightly different. Like, 
it's a half step higher. <laughs> it's like, this is so powerful. And so those sort of things I love, and I feel like that's there for the taking for me to, to use in my own way. But I love the complexity of classical music and the richness of that tradition too. So I feel like there's a communicative sort of immediacy to pop music in, in, given that it's 2012 and that's what most people listen to. But there's a sort of emotional satisfaction to classical music too. So I just take what I like from all the genres. Do you ever feel like you're making a compromise, like a compromise in a, like, okay, so you're blending the two, but then in blending the two, you can say, oh, there's this great thing about the classical music tradition or the modern music tradition that I'm missing that I really love that I wish I could do, but there's just no way I can marry these two things without giving out good parts of both. I don't think I ever think about it that much. You know, like all I'm you saying... Just go, you just go for it. And, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it much more it of an intuitive thing that's happening. I'm not saying to myself... Like when I wrote the Eighth Blackbird piece, I wasn't thinking of it this way, actually. When I wasn't thinking like, oh, this, this is like the chorus of a pop song. It's just sort of after the fact that I'm like, oh, that's what led me to sort of pursue that idea in this piece. When I'm writing it, I'm not really thinking of, of that stuff at all. I can't see, I never see it as a limiting thing. I never say like, oh, I've painted myself into a corner by writing this like poppy song. So now I can't use this crazy multiphonic. <laughs> yeah, just use the multiphonic like if it's there and you want to. Yeah, but then it might break a continuity with like then people won't recognize it as a pop song is what I mean. Or they'll, it's not a pop song, but they won't recognize that influence. If you go too much, yeah, they cancel each other out. Then you have this thing that, seems influenceless and maybe that's not what you're necessarily going for i don't worry about it i've never had that problem i never never rejected an idea just because it's um i can't sorry i just can't imagine a situation where that would happen that's good i gotta bring it up again do you feel like that association with pop music is what makes academic grant writing institutions kind of say that's not what we do (laughs) <laughs> yes, I think that 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 does happen. I see a lot of composers being dismissed for the the surface of their work. You know, you know what I mean? For superficial reasons. I remember I once had a teacher in Europe say, "You know, this isn't this ending of this piece isn't any good. I can I can hear where the tonic is." I'm like, "So what?" You know, it's like it doesn't make it good or bad, yeah. but in his mind it was a huge insult. And I was just like, again, there's good tonal music, there's bad tonal music, and there's relevant music that is relevant to us today that is tonal and music that is relevant to us that is not tonal. And it's like, it's about something else. This was in where? This was in the Netherlands? Yeah, it was like, uh, again, I'm not going to tell you who it was. No, 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 I'm not asking, I'm not asking, I'm not asking. <laughs> but it was in, when I was studying in the Netherlands, there was a guest teacher who just sort of attacked me for that. And I was like, no, this is, it's not even hard to stand my ground because I... I believe this so completely. I know you think you're insulting me right now, but you're just stating a fact that's I'm okay with basically is what you were saying. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you have a student here, so I feel like <laughs> I feel really Don't feel really bad. bad. Do you no, have I've... anything any anything else? I mean, do you mind if we wait like 5 minutes? Maybe. No, this is fine. I think, you know, I, I okay. yeah, and we and we have plenty of stuff and um yeah, I apologize for being late and yeah, did I bring up institutional stuff too much in the beginning? I kind of feel like a dick. No, don't feel the, like doing a dick. That, yeah. it's, it's just a hard thing for me to talk about without feeling like, like I said, it's like every time I talk about academia, it comes out being like, everyone wants you to take a stand for or against everything in the world. Yeah, you know? And yeah. so I have a very nuanced, complicated relationship with academia and one that is not totally good or totally bad at all yeah it's just complicated yeah i felt like i was pushing you yeah i felt like i was pushing you in one direction or the other and i didn't mean that i didn't mean to do that so no yeah no you didn't um also it's like my ideas on it are constantly changing you know so but like it takes the distance to change like yes of course it does but it takes time and distance away from that for it to change you know what i mean slowly you realize that they're just doing your thing and you're doing your thing and then that's okay not that coming down hard on you for something you know yeah but i do wish you know i do stand my ground and wish that i'm not just going to tell my students to not go into academia i feel like part of my goal my job on this planet is to make that situation better for young composers you know and to sort of ease the anxiety of like being in school so i feel like a lot of composers have a lot of anxiety about their own output at a time when they should feel free to just experiment and try lots of crazy weird stuff i really have this utopian vision of this 
place or this attitude where people, young composers can just try stuff and not be feel like they have to do any one thing. So it's like all of my sort of gripes about academia just come from that sort of utopian vision of wanting, really feeling like I can make, I can make, make that happen for some people. Yeah. Part of that also reflects how humans are flawed, too. Like, mm-hmm. it's not just the institution. It's like some stodgy guy or girl, I mean, whatever, mm-hmm. who is like also kind of pressuring the students. Maybe the solution is not like the structure, any kind of weird structural thing, but maybe also just get more open-minded teachers in there. And then the whole thing is going to work a lot better than Mm -hmm. it is. I just don't want a situation where composers, again, I know that this happens. It's a very human, understandable tendency. But I think a lot of professors try to create little mini-me's. Even inadvertently, even with the best of intentions, and even the best teachers will end up with a school of students who are just like them. And that to me is the worst thing you can do for your students. Those aren't the best teachers, though. Those are bad teachers. Well, no, but the the most... I'm saying the kind-hearted, knowledgeable, smart teachers still sometimes do this. I but kind-hearted, knowledgeable, and smart doesn't mean good. Okay, they have good intentions, but if everybody's being funneled in their direction, but then, then still, all the problems that your, you know your gripe comes from, that's where that arises. But I would say you can still learn things from those people. And if you have, have a, as a student have a strong mind and a will to do your own thing... You're going to be fine. A lot of students don't have that. And I feel like you could really do your students a disservice if you teach them to be just like you. Because then how are they supposed to be famous? How are they supposed to make their mark in the world if they're not themselves and doing something that's totally unique? And I think that's the thing that never gets talked about in school. And I know it's a hard thing to talk about. I know that this being yourself and being original is this unquantifiable, elusive, crazy thing. But I always felt like I wish that this was supported more as an idea this idea that like okay you can have a perfectly orchestrated orchestra piece but if it's totally derivative it's not going to really get you very far and And who cares in a certain (laughs) way you know what i mean like who cares you did something like the other it's like you're basically might as well be a roofer at that point is what i feel it's like you know you learned how to put the shingles on a roof just like Mm -hmm. the other guy did it and that's your vocation but there's nothing creative about that act and believe me like I don't mean to sound like a jerk. It's very hard to write a successful orchestra piece, even if it's derivative. And I myself have written plenty of derivative orchestra pieces with the idea of learning how to write for orchestra. But after a point, that really just paints you into the corner. It's not going to help you get more commissions for orchestra. I felt as a student, I'm like, wow, I could just do write music just like my teacher and get A's. And, and this is in air quotes, but like succeed. When, but that's not really success in the real world. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. I'll let you teach your Okay. I don't know wh- how I, why I started ranting. No, no, no. I, rants, <laughs> you know, rants are great. And again, I feel, uh, uh, well, I'll send it to you before I edit. And if there's anything you're not cool with about like okay. me pushing you in the beginning towards one side or the other, then I'll totally cut it out. That would be great to hear it. I oh, mean, that'd I, be great to be able to. No, you'll you'll yeah. definitely hear it before I put it out there. I've never, okay. I would never do that. But uh, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for coming over. Thank you for braving the traffic.